From the southernmost points of dawn to the lands of always winter, what is west of Westeros and the shadows in the east, this is Casterly Talk. I'm Kat Napsuck. Thanks for joining me here, whether in podcast form, part of the Good People Association Podcast Network on Blue Wire, found wherever podcasts are found. Just search. And if we're on something that uh, you're like, hey, I'd like Casterly Talk to be here, just let me know. We'll try to get it there, but we're generally wherever podcasts are found. And of course, we are here on YouTube, which means you might be watching the Casterly Talk channel. Get over there, subscribe, even if you prefer the podcast. Get over there and sub uh, as we start getting closer to House of the Dragon. want to be uh, doing some stuff with that. Uh, you know, just uh, building that channel up. But uh, this uh, continues here as a podcast for those who are just joining the show. We've been around for a couple years. First is Daily Thrones, now here as Casterly Talk. I am uh, getting back on the rewatch horse after a, a, a break for travel and a break last week to talk about some Game of Thrones news, including... The official Game of Thrones convention in Las Vegas, February 2022 at the Rio. As of right now, some of you responded, like our longtime listener and friend Ranger Donald said uh, he plans to be there. Others out there as well. So at this point, I think I'm going to make that trip, going to figure that out, heading to the Rio, which, as I said last week, has, quite frankly, a uh, great little mini golf course inside it that's all Kiss-themed, if you're a fan of the band Kiss. And fire and... Axe, bass, play, play, bass, guitars. It's kind of Game of Thrones, like I guess. Kiss. It's a different, different podcast. When rock bands go Game of Thrones. We are in the middle of our rewatch of season three, and we're going to dive into that here with a little bit of a different format. I love diving into the themes and the lessons and the things that have more meaning now. As the show, uh, you know, we look back at the show that's uh, completed. Uh, but I also want to make sure I'm looking back on the episodes from uh, uh, not just, uh, you know, uh, this uh, scholarly pursuit of themes and lessons. I also want to just talk about the episodes and where they stand, my reactions to them then, what they're known for. And so that's what we're going to be doing here as well. A little bit of a, a, a slight switch to the format. So if you're just here for the general rewatch and, and maybe you're in the middle of rewatch, and I also, also should say for every episode, if you are, for whatever reason, and very possible, watching Game of Thrones for the first time and you are going to this podcast to get some, uh, have a place to talk or just listen to me ramble about the episodes, we do talk ahead. We do talk about what's to come, and we do we do kind of spoil uh, the show going forward. So I always want to be careful of just like, you know, taking a Game of Thrones journey now. Uh, you know, this uh, I, I will be talking about big things. All right, there you go. That's your warning. You might already know some of them, but if you haven't experienced, say, the Red Wedding, and you've only heard of it, just let yourself experience it and um, come back to us after. We'll always be here. We'll always be here. Season 3, Episode 5, Kissed by Fire, the 25th episode overall, originally aired on April 28, 2013. I love kind of taking yourself back to where you were in your life at that time. Uh, and where were you, where, wh- where were you physically, literally, and also just where were you mentally and emotionally when you're watching some of these episodes? And did that factor into your reaction at the time? I don't know. Director uh, Alex Graves, he uh, directed uh, the last one as well. And there's some interesting... Brian Cogman is the writer here, the credited writer. He's uh, on the writing staff. He's the one who keeps track of the the ongoing uh, show Bible. 
and story arcs, and he's the one that's kind of uh, known for being the most knowledgeable about just the story of Game of Thrones, the world of Westeros, and Songs of Ice and Fire, and thus. Cogman was working on some of the spinoffs, uh, right? And uh, those didn't go forward yet. But he's too much of a Game of Thrones resource for HBO just to cast aside, I'm sure. Alex Graves, the credited director. Uh, Brian Cogman, the credited writer. As often on TV shows, sometimes writer's rooms and all those kind of things. Other people kind of uh, have some things in the episodes. Benioff and Weiss actually have a uh, scene or two here that they wrote for the next episode, The Climb. A lot of stuff with Daenerys, and so that's a different director. So they were, um, in, in the course of uh, post-production, editing, and, and getting the season ready, they were putting this episode. Cinefer, uh, cin- cinematographer, excuse me, cinematographer was Annette uh, Halmick, uh, and editor was Katie Weidland. We love tracking that as well. It's so important to the show. And there's so many other behind-the-scenes people, as we know, important to the show. And we'll talk about the costume uh, designers' uh, contributions to the season, a big Big thing that was done there. I want to look now at the reaction then and, and and kind of the legacy now and what we think about this episode. For me, and it's always from my perspective here, this episode follows one of the biggest action sequences of the early run of the show. That being season three, episode four's uh, Danny's uh, Dracaris moment. Uh, just a wonderful moment. Great episode. And and two weeks ago now, or three weeks ago now on the show, we... We uh, took a took a deeper dive into that. So going back to 2013, initially this one, this episode, and episode six, The Climb, which I can't wait to revisit. I'll explain in a second. These episodes kind of came as uh, came along as too quiet or maybe even slow for me back in 2013. I don't like that filler word. I don't believe it. I don't believe it exists. It's not true. You're not. If you describe a, a show nowadays, a Mandalorian or a Star Wars TV show of any kind or any kind of big genre show, and you say, ah, that episode was just filler, I just don't think you've done your homework. I don't think you've engaged with the episode. I don't believe in the word. I know where it came from. I know there are, uh, especially in anime, there's there's filler episodes. I, I get where the, the name comes from. That name is just tossed. That word is just tossed around. And I think... Episodes like this one, five and six uh, in this season, particularly The Climb, the, the, they can get tossed tossed uh, out there. Because it's, you're coming off just this big, high-budget, dramatic sequence with Danny getting her uh, her unsullied and Jakaris and the burning of Astapor. Uh, y- yeah, you know, like, you're, you're going to think to yourself, yeah, these episodes, uh, they, they didn't really move the plot forward. Uh, they didn't do much. Uh, not, not, not a lot happened. Not true this episode. This episode, a lot happened because, uh, you know, um, this one didn't, this episode didn't just grow on me. It, it became an episode that I would point to, and I still point to, I, I and perhaps many of us love this world, not even the show. We always talk about the show. We are reviewing the show. We're looking back at the show. This isn't a look back at the books. They are forever intertwined. But the show is its own thing, and I point to this episode, though, as an example of this world that I do include the books in that. The Jamie Bathhouse scene, the Jamie Brand Bathhouse scene, let's make it clear. It's just as much um, uh, about her her uh, in that scene as well, too, I want to be clear. Um, what it does to you as a fan, what it does to you as a viewer. I hated Jamie Lannister in season one, right? You know, you, you had to. He was going after our beloved Ned, and... I was trying not to like him in season two. You know, plus he pushed push Bran out of the window. That's, that's something there, too. 
I tried not to like him in season two, but he was making too much sense. There was too much stuff he was saying in season two that was warping my brain a little bit. Like, I, I, I don't want to like this guy. I don't want to like this guy. But here he is. He seemed to be making sense. And here we are in season three. We're already building up to the point that the loss of the hand, uh, him just being literally down in the mire and the muck in this bathhouse scene where he's, you know, getting cleansed. Literally, figuratively, spiritually, thematically, he's getting cleansed. He's getting clean, coming clean. And I have absolute empathy for him. Absolute empathy. And this is where I think Jamie is a character that I think a lot of people, when they talk about the shades of gray in Game of Thrones and Song of Ice and Fire and complicated characters and layers, I think I think Jamie is one of the prime examples of that. And this episode is the episode for that, the bathhouse scene. It's so good. So that's where that's where I look at, uh, you know, looking back, you know, I didn't have a podcast to jump on in 2013. Uh, so who knows what I would have said. I, you know, always loved every episode of Game of Thrones. But it's I think it's also okay to admit that, hey, yeah, following, uh, you know, episode four, you know, or, you know, you, there's no big giant sword fights here uh, other than the, the, the one that starts this episode. But there's no, you know, no big war, no nothing, no big giant reveals. Well, we get truth. We get information. We get a different perspective on these characters. That is what I love about this episode so much, and I think what people love about this series and the books. At the time, interesting to note, this was the highest-viewed episode of GOT on release, with 5.35 million people viewing it on its initial airing. The episode also won an Emmy for Outstanding Makeup for a single-camera show, non-prosthetic. There you go. Quite a category. Uh, but, uh, yeah, probably you got Shireen. Um, that probably contributed to that Emmy win and a lot there. So there you go. We always talk about the perspective, season one, season two, a beloved seasons, especially season one, of course, very popular. And the numbers were great. But there was a time, believe it or not, where, you know, every year you had to kind of wait to the end of the season to hear, yeah, the officially, you know, foregone conclusion maybe, but hey, HBO's going to renew it. Don't worry, we're going to get another season. It wasn't until after this season, I think, that was like, yeah, we're, we're good to go. Now, again, did H was it, at this point, coming out of season two, are you, are you going to, is HBO seriously considering not picking up the show? Not necessarily. I, I don't believe that. But the budget's a concern. The budget could be because, and the budget from here on out is only going to get bigger, and the show's only going to get bigger in terms of its uh, that what it takes to make the show. So that's a, that's a legit concern, and and I think um, these type of episodes help with that too. This is another thing um, about that filler conversation. You're coming off of Dracaris, and it's a lot of CG, fire, practical effects, all all that kind of stuff. And this season, and there and there's. Big stuff in, in this episode, but in, in, in this episode, you come back and it, it is a little quieter. quieter. And, and see, uh, season three, episode six is a little quieter. I mentioned up top, I want to talk about episode six. I can't wait to, to review it next time out, uh, dive into the, in, in the next episode, because I did not like the climb. That I do remember. This episode, uh, it, it was like, yeah, okay, quieter, a little slower, but oh, that Jamie scene. Oh my gosh, so much stuff in there. I remember. And I've seen the episode, I've seen the climb so many times since then. But I remember back in 2013, now we'd be in, what, May of 2013, just absolutely not liking the climb. And uh, I can already tell, you know, those thoughts don't hold up, but I want to I dive in deeper for the show. Interesting, uh, interested to do that. What is this episode known for? Like we said, the Jamie and Brianne bath scene. 
I think it's probably the most remembered scene. It's the most talked about, uh, one of the most celebrated, but this episode is called Kissed by Fire, so we get a very important scene for John and Egret that picked up with significance as the show went on, tying it to, again, spoiler for the 1% that might not just be watching along for the first time, but we do have to put that out there. Uh, tying it to Egret's death. I think tying it to John and Danny's less passionate kind of pre-cave moment in, what was it, season seven now, when they go for the dragon ride. Is that seven? Is it eight? It all rolls into one, right? Uh, there you go. No, uh, seven. Um, and uh, Or no, eight. Gosh, I can't even. Yeah, eight. Gosh, can you, I can't wait to review those. <laughs> it's been a long, long day. Uh, and then uh, even John himself returning to the north at the end of, end of it all. Uh, I think there's a giant big themes behind John going north again and returning there and, and his true hero's journey. But I personally can't help but think of this episode. And this scene, and the cave scene, and Egret saying, as we'll talk about in a second here, Egret talking about, I never want to leave this cave, and, and just everything that happens between them going forward and then where John ends up. I think, I, I do believe there's a spiritually part of it, him wanting to get back to that cave, wanting to go uh, home, to, to his true home now. That's there as well. Other big things uh, that this episode is known for, that's big, but uh, the Rob Stark, Rickard Karstark beheading, is one as well, which is the other things I want to talk about here. The impact on the story and the impact on us. This is just on a, talking about these scenes and moments. Uh, not digging into the themes per se, but but going into what they mean for the story. And, and Rob Stark's beheading of, of Rickard Karstark, I think, is one of the most important uh, actions uh, uh, that Rob took. And important in the sense that it has a direct impact on the events going forward. Uh, he, he, in many ways, I believe... And, and Rickard Karstark is already plainly stated, talking about him marrying Talisa, you lost the war the, the day you married her, right? I'm paraphrasing a bit there, but I think this is the moment where Rob's kind of lost it. Uh, and, and one of the great um, things about this scene as we dive into it of connecting his hand, he grips his hand, he's shaking his hand, that type of thing, which is something that... Uh, uh, you see uh, season one after Ned Stark dies and he's out there just destroying his sword. Catelyn Stark yelling, Rob, your sword! And he's just hacking that tree in his hand. He hurts his hand and I love that connection. It's uh, Rob not in control. Um, and, and that has direct impact on what's going to happen because he's weakened his army. And, and he's forced himself to prepare for a bold attack on Casterly Talk. Which is probably, I think, if you just want to analyze, I think probably the right decision for Rob to make at that point. He's got to give the, the his his army something to fight for, something to think for, re-energize them. I think Talisa's a little right about that. So he makes it what would be a, a, a bold thing, which is, uh, you know, something he kind of confirms again with, with Catelyn Stark later on. But this this means he has, to, he has to go to the Twins and seek out Walter Frey. It's, it's not complicated. It's not complicated, and we'll talk about the themes and, and lessons uh, that the show has for us about him returning to Walder Frey and what that kind of means. Uh, so this this is uh, even though I think the the bathhouse uh, scene, uh, the bath scene, and then the cave scene, a lot of baths, a lot of people jumping in water in this episode, uh, cleaning yourself, uh, cleaning yourself of what what comes before, where you are now, and, and where you want to be. Uh, it, it's pretty clear there too, and when you're talking about uh, that water theme. But I think as, as as powerful those scenes are, I, I really love this this Rob scene, and it, and I love it in the sense of it's Rob, uh, it's it's Rob in trouble. 
And I like Rob Stark. I love Richard Madden as a performer. And, and uh, you know, you were, you were rooting for him. And as someone who had not read this far ahead in the books yet, and a lot of you in season three were just giggling, waiting for all of us to get to it. But uh, I, by now I had learned, you know, we're th- three, uh, two and a half seasons in. By now I had learned, you, you know, it's not ever going to turn out the way you think. But following, you know, the death of Ned and all the stuff going on with Bran and Arya and, and the Stark family, uh, and I was always big, and I'm still big on discussing the the sins of of the Starks, that the Starks make a lot of mistakes. Sometimes uh, it, it's their own doing that gets them in this trouble with a little bit of that northern stubbornness, I suppose. But with all that aside, I, Rob was one of those guys, I, uh, characters uh, I was rooting for. When when he said, yeah, we're going to go to Casually Talk, I thought that was going to be the big battle. That we're going to get at end of, end of season three, which is I always say I'm bad at predictions, and, and and it's really you don't want to predict and you don't want to predict based on plot. You want to try to predict based on what the show is telling you, what the themes where where, where they're taking you on that, right? Um, but it's also about I love engaging with the show, and I think that's a little bit why I'm also t- discussing this stuff and not just diving straight into the themes. I love looking at the, the show too as a living history document and wondering if Rob uh, made the right decision in, in um, beheading Rickard Karstark. We know, we have the benefit of hindsight of saying, no, he didn't make the right decision. But in that moment, it's similar to, to some of the ways he had to show strength, uh, thinking of the, you know, the great John and, and when great John, uh, you know, uh, Lord Umber stood up to him and, uh, uh, you know, uh, Having Rob having to prove his toughness uh, there, even before he's real, really the king of the north, and I think there's some of that that goes on, and some of that's in his decision to execute Richard uh, Richard Karstark. I want to talk about justice in this episode's idea of what is justice. It asks that question a lot here. But did Rob make the right decision? Again, we have the benefit, but I, I say no. I say just all things to get all things be, being weighed equally. I, I think. Um, Ed Muir and, and Talisa and Catelyn Stark are telling Rob the absolute right thing to do. Word of this can't leave everyone. It can't, you know, uh, it's only going to, you know, upset Tywin even more, even though Tywin's not too concerned about some distant cousins he's probably never met. Though one of them will be reborn as, uh, reincarnated as the future king, I guess. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I think that's the right, that's the right counsel. It's the right counsel. But Rob does what he feels he has to do. And I'm fascinated by that decision. He is in a tough spot. Other things uh, that the show, this uh, episode, um, it, it has that impacts the story and impacts us as a uh, listener too. I, I love seeing uh, uh, Grey Worm uh, kind of being selected as the leader of the Unsullied. Jacob Anderson arrives. So great. He's so good. And in the end, uh, he is the last character to stand with Danny. We'll talk about that. Uh, that's a, a direct impact on the story, and uh, you know, at the end of this episode, I don't. I, I, I've in looking at what I'm going to be talking about here as we dive in a little bit more. I don't have a lot planned or a lot to say on Tywin's uh, strategic play to marry Cersei to Loras and Ta- Tyrion to Sansa. Other than I think it, I think personally, it might have hastened the uh, actions of the Queen of Thorns. At what point was she going to be um, knocking off Joffrey? I think that was already decided. The stuff with Marjorie already decided. The sit-down conversations with Sansa. Queen of Thorns isn't waiting around. But does this hasten it? Does this, um, once it's revealed, not in this episode, but once it's revealed to the Queen of Thorns and House Tyrell later that they're, you know, uh, this this is happening and, and, and Loras is tied into this and 
Uh, you got Baelish working his magic in the background. Uh, you know, I, I have to wonder what this particular uh, action and the, and the removal of Sansa from the uh, chess piece here, a uh, chess piece uh, board by um, by Tywin. It's it. Olena's uh, you know, got some thoughts on that. It definitely helped fuel uh, Baelish's chaos. I love a couple scenes with uh, Baelish here. You know, Cersei's in his face. He, he's rightfully, uh, you know, respectful of Cersei's power. She's explained to him before, power is power. That little uh, little glean, that little glint in his eye, man. I love Baelish just whipping up that chaos. He's got the big speech next episode. But then Oliver, he sends Oliver to Loras in a scene. Interesting, I was doing a little research on that there. A lot of people at the time, uh, this is the book reader side of things, uh, which, again, I am. I want to always be clear, I am. So I'm never... Um, I never want to come off as uh, overly cynical or harsh to book readers, but sometimes you can you can just you can take a little fun out of it when you're you're just gripping onto the books, not just Game of Thrones, but any uh, material that is adapted. And you just hold on to it like a with a tight grip because of plot, because of details, but also because of themes and and emotions and, and character point of views. You lose a little bit of Loris in this episode, and Brian Cogman did talk about that. A lot of people upset that uh, uh, Loris is uh, quick to go to bed with uh, Oliver. Um, and on the show, it seems kind of like, oh, all right, let's, 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 uh, let's get it done. I'm all about this, but really he should be mourning Renly. Cogman did explain that he had some of those scenes written, had some of those scenes, I think they might have even been shot, but I know definitely talked about having to as, the, as they headed toward production. Uh, whittle some of the stuff down. As I said, some of the scenes shot for episode six moved into uh, this episode, so they lost a lot of stuff, and that was one of the things Cogman uh, talked about, uh, regret, just regrets, just um, that it does come off as as Loris just kind of being a little callous towards Renly, when really what, what Cogman and, and they, were, they were putting in there is um, he might have just been turning to just uh, sex, lust, fill in the void, because he just couldn't comprehend, couldn't process the loss of Renly. So that's there as well. All that has impact on the story going forward. We love to talk about foreshadowing things with more meaning. This is the the fun. And I was talking to some folks recently who, uh, friends of mine, who are, you know, will count themselves as Game of Thrones fans, but... Don't really, a lot of people, you know, if it's not a show that you love like I do or a lot of you watching and listening love, you know, you don't take those deep dives. You don't go back. It's might, might have been a while since you watched season three. I am discovering even even someone who not too long before I started this rewatch, I had did a did a complete rewatch of the show with uh, Grace here in the house. And season three has so many important moments, I think, really set the tone and the goals and, and a lot of the just the purpose and sets up a lot of big things going forward all the way into season eight. I think season three is where they really had the confidence. You hear them even in behind the scenes stuff and behind the scenes books like ah, season three by season three, we really knew we were going to be able to do what we wanted to do with Danny. Uh, famously, the, you know, a lot of people don't like, ah, they decided a little bit later on that the Night King's uh, uh, death might come at the hands of Arya. I, you shouldn't worry about that, man. It doesn't speak to a lack of a plan. It doesn't speak to a lack of where you're going. That I, I still, I, I really fight those who put out that, that meme of Game of Thrones season one through four is a detailed picture of a horse and it gets worse and worse and worse. So it's just a stick figure of a cartoon. I reject that. I reject it on principle and I reject it a lot by just looking at season three. Because you need to follow the themes, the, 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 the point of views and, and, and the little things happening. There's a little moment here with Jorah and Barristan. It just kind of gives insight to where Jor's mind is. And it, it's it's subtle. It's a look. 
And if you're just not, if you're not going by, back and taking a look at these these uh, these episodes a little deeper, you you might get to season eight. You might get to season seven and go, wow, what are they doing? I believe season three really sets it up, and that's why it's so fun to go back. It's fun to go back and see things that have. A little more meaning. And sometimes they're small. Kyburn steps forward as a dark scientist in this episode. We've already met Kyburn. Uh, we, we've already met him at Harrenhal. He is uh, you know, traveling with Locke and everything. Now he's uh, here in the service of, of uh, House Bolton. And uh, he tends to Jamie. And one of my favorite little scenes. But Kyburn, uh, just you, that now you watch it now. And at the time, in 2013, you're like, oh, that, that weird... Uh, yeah, weird doctors uh, going to do some work on Jamie Lannister. Now it just means so much more and to focus in on Anton Lesser's face as, as he um, tells Jamie, is it going to hurt? I don't care. It's going to be a lot of pain. Yeah. You will scream. Yeah. I uh, love everything going on in there. Uh, the the duel with uh, Beric Dondarrion and the Hound. I mentioned that the a lack of action, but this episode starts with some great action. I love this little fight. It, and it was set up the previous episode, but the duel with Beric and the Hound is, is just an absolute great sequence. But now just means a lot more with Jon's fate uh, still ahead. Melisandre floating around and this ability. And now she eventually will discuss with Thoris about what, he, what did you do? How many times did you bring him back? And uh, then the stuff we'll talk with uh, Barrack and, and the Hound and their purpose going forward. I love that. Um, and then the Lord of Light also clearly, like I said, the Lord of Light has big plans for Sandor and uh, uh, Barrack. And it's also interesting just talking about things that just have more meaning and that, that we're not talking about the impact on the story necessarily. But after season eight, going back to this episode, because we're, we're not the, the, the Arya, Arya and the Hound sitcom hasn't begun yet. But go to these moments where Arya's just shooting daggers at the Hound and wants him dead. And she's, she's learning. She has a concept of justice. And she's seen that concept just perverted in front of her eyes, just destroyed in front of her eyes. And so she naturally just wants to see the Hound destroyed. It killed in this moment. It just doesn't seem right. But to take that and, and, and just kind of uh, put it up against uh, Arya and the Hound's final scene in season eight um i just think this this scene this moment this sequence has a little, a little more meaning for me two things that have uh big uh, foreshadowing things with more meaning things uh things with more meaning um uh, ramifications there uh going to twitter here and again if you have a question you can go to uh twitter follow me at ken Napsock. just use hashtag casterly talk and uh, you can uh, shoot a question for any upcoming episode uh, sometimes tape these in advance, sometimes I'm late to getting them, but um, uh, any episode, just let me know the number and uh, ask me a question about it there. Uh, and our friend Eric Monroe always checks in, always has some great insights and great observations. Uh, talks about the Davos and Shireen relationship. It's very key, obviously, because he teaches him to read, which saves him later on in the season three finale. And he also loves Shireen singing, I, I know, I know. Oh, uh, great nod to the books. Um, and then uh, Eric and I are both Stannis fans, and Stannis looking around with Shogsum is just very Stannis. Yeah, we're going to talk about that a little bit later. Uh, so, yeah, about that, the we got um, uh, we got uh, this scene here with uh, well, a couple scenes. We get to meet Shireen for the first time, and we also get to meet uh, Selyse, Tara Fitzgerald uh, coming in as Selyse Baratheon, Carrie Ingram as Shireen Baratheon there. And she's wonderful. Uh, she, Carrie Ingram is just absolutely wonder, wonderful. Uh, you immediately like her. You immediately have empathy for her. And it, it, it it's setting up things with Stannis. But yeah, this is one of those little things, you know, when it falls into place. Um, her deciding in this moment, uh, she's got to teach 
uh, Sir Davos to read, quite frankly, saves the entire realm and land and world, I think. It's one of those moments. She's going to teach him to read. He is going to save himself from execution at the end of the uh, season and then talk about uh, your need. Basically, hey, you know what? I, I read the, this letter, this raven uh, note from, uh, from the Night's Watch. We need to go up there. And Stannis, your destiny, your place is up there. Stannis has his own journey, as we know, but Stannis does go save the day. And that's literal. <laughs> he saves the absolute day at the end of season four. So Shireen, bless her little heart, that sweet soul, just wanting to do right by teaching Davos to read, I think saves the world. There you go, Shireen. Sorry. Sorry what happens to you. And yes, I say that as a Stannis fan. A uh, little thing here. I mentioned up top. Jorah and Barristan's conversation. We get this stuff. And this is stuff, I believe, shot that was supposed to be included in uh, the, the next episode. But they put it here. And I think it ends up working here pretty well. Uh, Jorah and Barristan's conversation has always been one of my favorite little scenes. Because I love both these guys. I love my grumpy old characters. And I, I want them to get along so badly. Plays out differently in the books. Of course it plays out differently in the books. Because... Uh, we don't know that Barrison's there. He's still his alter ego, uh, Whitebeard. Yeah, he's, you don't know who he is, just like you don't know who Reek is for the books. Uh, and that's a different experience. So you have to approach it all differently. So we know it's Barristan. We know it's Jorah. And I want them just get along, guys. You're two cranky old codgers. Get along and help Danny. And they both want to. Uh, this scene takes on importance later. It's a great conversation between them about vows and wanting to serve and, and Danny. This scene takes on great importance later if you're a Jorah fan when uh, Barristan finally learns what Jorah thinks he's getting away with here. It's the little moment. Uh, you can focus on, especially if you're a book reader, again, the the Lord Commander uh, there is, uh, is um, not Lord Commander City Watch, but, you know, Barristan, uh, the, the head of the Gold Cloaks there, is uh, um, the Kingsguard, I should say. Sorry, I'm just throwing around titles. The Kingsguard. Uh He's supposed to be on the small council, right? And that's one of the things the show did not do. Uh, I forget the reasons. Probably everything everything that they did not do that's in the books that you get upset about, usually budget. Usually budget. Or just too many characters in one spot. So Barrison's cut from that. So this scene, is a, it addresses that. It's Cogman addressing that in his writing here. Uh, if that was what's affected the scene. This also might have been the Benioff and Weiss scene, now that I think about it, take it back. But they address it. And I'm sure this still came from Cogman. Of uh, Jorah kind of asking, well, hey, doesn't uh, the head of the King's Guard sit on the small council? Barristan says, well, ah, you know, Robert, yes, normally, but I killed a lot of Robert's friends, so he's not going to put me there. And I think a lot of the focus goes on that. Oh, there's the explanation. And a lot of focus goes on just these two guys trying to get along. What's not there is by that revelation, Jorah has a moment and he realizes, and then he mentions it a little bit later, uh, yeah, is anyone on the, the small council that talks sense into Robert? You know, I'm sure they just gossip about the betrayals uh, the world over. And he's talking about his betrayal here. It's Jorah's betrayal. Uh, he knows it's in his past. He knows the season one pardon from Robert. He's been spying on Danny no longer. Long since cut that out, but he did give the valuable bit of information. The reason there was assassins coming after Danny, the reason they knew she was pregnant, knew she was with Cal Drogo, it was Jorah. And so for him to be carrying that, and here it is in season three, and he gives he gives Barristan that look. Oh, so you're not you're not on the small council. Okay. Has anyone said anything about me? No? Okay. I think I can get away with this. And then 
the tone switches. And Jorah, that scene, Ian Glenn in that scene, it, now he's in this, what he believes is a position of power. They're going back and forth. They've been sharing war stories. Uh, Barrison has just been with them for a few days. But, you know, Barrison has some very earnest questions about uh, Danny. I've all my life I've wanted to serve a great uh, a great uh, king or queen, a ruler there. Shiloh do you believe? He's, I'm paraphrasing, but, you know, you, you believe in her? And Jorah's, uh, you know, up until this moment is 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 uh, maybe on even uh, footing here with Barristan and actually probably, you know, uh, trying to guard a little bit here because Barristan showing up, that's dangerous for Jorah if, if the truth comes out. And so what he, the moment he finds out, oh, you don't know. Got it. You probably haven't heard. I'm leaving. No? Have, have you heard of any betrayals? No? Okay. Boom. Jorah's in the power seat. Starts talking down to him. Oh, is it we already, Barrison? Oh, I don't know. You've only been with us a few days. Uh, so I love all the scene. I love what's going on between these two great performers. Uh, and I love what it uh, means now when you look at it now, especially with Barrison being the one to get the information and confront Jorah. Good stuff. All right. Let's, on the podcast side, take a quick break. If you're on the YouTube side, you're going to watch me drink. And not, not that kind of drink. Just a little energy drink. Mmm. Drank that like a king. Dribbling all over my beard. All right, everybody. You just watched a man drink some fruit juice. Did you like that? Some good old fruit juice? Uh, we're back here on Casterly Talk. We are getting in the groove. The themes and the lessons. Ah, this is the juicy stuff. This is what I really love. Finding out what the show and what this episode is trying to tell us. I think there's uh, there's there's three things that this episode is about. Vows, loyalties, you can throw oaths in there, all in the same. Uh, vows, loyalties, and justice. Justice is big. Even Benioff, who is the one that says, we don't write with themes in Game of Thrones. That's for uh, school projects, junior high English papers. We don't write with themes. Even he talks about it in the behind the scenes after about the concept of justice. And we start with Arya. This episode starts with Arya uh, watching Hound and Barak fight. She knows the Hound is a killer, but the Lord of Light has plans. And she cannot comprehend because we have the great scene later on. With uh, Arya is reciting her list. This is after the Hound was uh, freed, after Beric was killed and uh, raised up again by Thor Samir. She is, uh, you know, because she knows, again, the Hound is a killer. She knows she's the one that had an, enough courage to stand up and say, you killed Michael, Micah, you killed the butcher boy. And that's why they're having this trial, trial by combat here. And this episode is asking, what is justice? What is it in this world? What is it, what is it in our world? What is justice? Is it in the moment? What is justice when it's delayed? And is it what we always want? And Arya, Arya, Arya has to believe in justice. She wants to believe. She needs to believe. Ned Stark, to this point, the most honorable man she's known. And, and Benioff goes into this here on, on the post-credit uh, post stuff, the behind-the-scenes stuff. Ned Stark is the most honorable man she knows, and he paid for, for that honor with his, with his head. She was there for it. She knows. And that scene uh, with, with Thoros and Beric is 
It's great for a lot of reasons. Barrick, Barrick, nice guy. Barrick's got good intentions. It's just wrapped up in the complicated layers of the Brotherhood of Without Without Banners. And, and I love the idea. I frighten you, girl. No. And she asks the details of how many times he's brought back, and it all leads to to Arya asking, uh, you know, could you bring um, could you bring a person back once with no head? Um, and it's sad, and it's tragic, and it's about her father. But that's her processing. I think this this new v- new view on justice, this new view on what justice might be, or what her relationship to it is. The Hound has gone free. It's not right. It's not right. Her to her in that moment. And Barrick saying the judgment isn't ours to make. Later saying, go in peace, Sandor Clegane. The, Clegane, the Lord of Light isn't done with you yet. Eight seasons behind us. We know this is true. But much like Rob in that moment, um, you got to make decisions. You got to process things as they, as they come along. And Arya is trying to process this concept of justice. That ties in a little bit later to the stuff with Jamie as well. Jamie is someone who I believed uh, in his heart served justice on the Mad King. And look what he got for it. So it's interesting that this Arya's seen this. Arya has um, Arya has, uh, has seen it and now is back to really reciting those names and wanting to give justice uh, in those situations as, uh, as she thinks it should be served. So this episode is a lot to... Um, a lot to say about justice and what it truly is, which leads into this other thing of the vows and loyalties. That comes up. We talk about oaths, oath keepers, oath breakers. This episode, I'm just going to go through them and run through them uh, all over the map here of the story here. Vows and loyalties. John trades some truth for one big lie. He, tra- he trades, uh, he's got these vows he's beholden to. He's got loyalties to the men of the Night's Watch. But he needs to get the loyalty of the wildlings. He knows it's, it's something that he kind of has a grip on, but he could lose it any moment. So he trades uh, with Aura, Aurel, uh, uh, with the, also the, the great, great, talk about moments that mean more of him. Hey, what happens to your, 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 uh, your um, eagle when I kill you? Your, um, um Love that there. But um, so John trades some truth. He tells the truth about what castles are manned. Uh, East Watch by the Sea, uh, uh, Shadow Tower, uh, and, and, and of course Castle Black. Great little moment there. He trades that. He trades on that loyalty. He trades that information um, to also protect and keep his vow, I think, to the, the men of the Night's Watch. He says there's a thousand men. So claims he's not lying. We know he is. Um, Orel knows he is. I think even Tormund knows he's lying. Um, Egret knows it too. That's why she then goes uh, and, and takes him into the cave. Quite a flirt. Just take his sword and run. You know, he'll follow. Uh, then Egret uh, makes him uh, makes him break them. Now, we know they have feelings for each other. We obviously get that there. But this whole scene, man, it's Egret running in and going, you, you made some vows. And I think in her head, she... I've always viewed it as being play, played as uh, she just saw him kind of lie. I think that she she doesn't trust him. I think they're all having trouble trusting each other. So some of it, some of it, it's it's two truths and a lie. Some of those things um, might be true. So this is it. This is the way to show. Um, but obviously feelings for each other, and and it's it's a great scene. It's a touching scene. We're gonna draw upon this scene. Uh, you know, later on in season four, we're going to draw upon it again in season seven and eight. And, and in John's final moments on the show, walking north, we're going to go back to this scene. We really are. 
John's saying we shouldn't. Egret's saying we should. And again, interesting to note as they're talking about giving a little, uh, they're giving a little love war stories. He's, uh, you know, she's talking about, uh, you know, she's uh, she's uh, played ball before, telling those stories. And uh, John kind of admits he's made, she's made, according to Egret. Um, great little funny beat. But John says, I, I was a man of the Night's Watch. It's interesting that he now in this moment very clearly say, thinking in his mind he's broken those vows. And looking ahead going forward, I, I, I think um, that helps him a little bit later when he comes back from it all. We can get get to that a little bit later on, of course, in uh, season uh, six. Uh, Egret, her great line, let's not go back, let's stay here a little while longer. I don't want to leave this cave, Jon Snow, not ever. Sweet, sweet, bittersweet moment. Uh, but here, all all about this themes about vows and loyalties. And then you got Baelish, a man of many vows and loyalties, and what are his worth. We're going to find out a lot about that next week with the climb and chaos being a ladder and all. Uh, but interesting in this episode, it is about that. It is about serving with honor or what is the sense of justice. Here's Baelish just looking around. He'll sell his vows. He'll sell his loyalties. And he'll sell them three times over. I love what he does in this. That's why he's so popular, I think, uh, in the show. is uh, We're all over here pondering deep lessons and thoughts. And Baelish is like, yeah, 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 whatever. I'm just going to create chaos because that serves me well. Uh, we also, uh, so, you know, diving around here, um, vows and loyalties. Uh, Rob faced, uh, you know, facing the vows he makes, the vows he has broken, the vows and, and loyalties he's got to keep to the houses, uh, to this idea of the king of the north, this war he's fighting. Richard Car- uh, Rickard Karstark, excuse me, is um, throws those back in his face. You know, he has been the entire time. He wants the vengeance for his son's death. Uh, he he, he completely, uh, we, are, we are kin, uh, we are blood, Stark and Karstark. Uh, Rickard Karstark mentions constantly, you know, we're loyal to you. We, we, we pledge vows and oaths to you. And uh, you're gonna you're kind of breaking ours. You're breaking the ones we made. And plus, you've already broken uh, <laughs> the Walter Frey vows, which is what Karstark said to him earlier in the season about Talisa. And so uh, I love that. That's a big, powerful theme here, too. We even got the little moment with Gendry talking about uh, uh, staying on, staying on uh, to be a blacksmith with the Brotherhood, which... which Arya can't comprehend. Again, Arya processing a lot of stuff. But I think Gendry, uh, and yes, you know, we can giggle and, and chuckle. We know what happens to them a little bit later on in the scene, uh, you know, uh, at a different time in their lives. Let's just say that. I just think Gendry can make, what I, I, what I interpret the scene as, and feel free to, to tweet back a, a different take on this scene too. With Gendry and, and Arya in this moment, uh, Gendry's been loyal to her and... Now that he knows who she is, there is, uh, you know, more reason to maybe make vows and, you know, cement more loyalties with um, with uh, a, a lady of House Stark, right? But uh, no matter what she already views herself and whether she wants that title or not, in this land, that's what she is. And, and I love Gendry breaking it. Uh, and the loyalty here is to himself, t- in my point of view. Gendry is now making his own vows and his own loyalties and his own oaths after being a, having a life, living a life thus far, being oppressed by other people's vows and loyalties. And that's why this, I, I think this is a particularly powerful moment. And we don't really, you know, after what um, is a long stretch of time on the show where we don't see Gendry, 
But I think when he's there, I think he represents some powerful things. And then this is this is I really do like this scene it, when you when you stack it up with, with what's going on this episode, it can get lost in the shuffles. But it is about um, the small folk and their vows and their loyalties, and how the big vows and the big loyalties uh, destroy the lives of those beneath him. So it's a powerful moment for Gendry to take that all into his own hand. Um, jumping back to Rob, though, you know the the so he, I also love to this concept of justice. And what he feels is justice for uh, the the Lannister cousins, and what he feels he has to do for them um, is equally, you know, doing it. Out of, is that the only reason he's doing it to uh, punish Richard Rickard? Car- I don't want I want to call him Richard tonight, Rickard Carstark. No, no, but it's also the sense of justice. Uh, and again, and, and as as Arya is pro- processing justice, justice in the moment versus true justice a little bit later on, or the big picture, or, or your passions getting in the way of true justice, and and all those kind of kind of big things. Uh, it's interesting that Rob's also got this idea of, of of the only thing he can think is that he he's so narrow focused on what he thinks has to be justice, what what has to be done, what has to be done to prove his power. And this is that interesting note as we as we um, talk about some things. I, um, I loved uh, the costume designer Michelle uh, Clapton uh, wrote it down somewhere there. Where did it go? She talked about uh, all through season three. They make a choice with Rob Stark to. There we go. Uh, Michelle Clapton talked about um, this. Um, they make a choice with Rob Stark to not really be in his full armor a lot. Uh, season two, he's at war. You see a lot of Rob in the armor in season two. A lot of tent conversations. Um, Michelle Fairley talked about that, uh, portraying Catelyn Stark about season. All I remember about season two is tent conversations, being in many tents, having many conversations. Uh, and here we are in some more tents, but um, and and uh, up there at uh, at uh, Castle Tully there. Um, Rob's uh, out of his armor a lot in this incident. That th- this big uh, he, he this big moment uh, where they uh, pull Carstark uh, and his men in, and Rob is sleeping. Rob is completely no armor on, and this is to kind of represent this idea that Rob is is vulnerable throughout this season, uh, vulnerable in the war, uh, trying to gain control of the war, and leading up the Red Wedding, and then he uh, puts full full armor back on for uh, what he has to do with uh, Rickard Karstark there, but by then it's too late. But it's just an indication, again, of what's going on in his head as he wrestles with justice, as he delivers what he feels is justice. And don't forget, this whole show starts with his father delivering uh, supposed uh, justice uh, to, a, to a man of the Night's Watch who deserted. And, and I love that the show starts with that and, and, and plays with that theme all throughout and, and how um, John's going to deal with it a little bit later on too. Uh, beheadings, big lessons in beheadings in Game of Thrones. Um, so, uh, we, uh, do have, uh, some more, uh, vows and loyalties to discuss. I mentioned a lot of the Jorah and Barristan, um, uh, talk on vows and loyalties. And Barristan just says it plain and simple. A man of honor keeps his vows. There ain't no two, two ways to look at it there. Uh, and I think that there again, the theme just working its way through and, and, the relationship, and I think the show asks about, you know, what vows do you keep and when is it okay to lose them? Is it okay to lose them? What are the consequences? Rob is running headlong into the consequences of breaking the vows, that uh, the many vows he's, he's made. He's got vows, he's got vows in high places and low places. Um, and so I just love that the Barristan just says it 
so simply, a man of honor keeps his vows. However, nothing simple in the show. And that was Ned Stark. Um, uh, uh, Jamie Lannister says it a little bit later, or says it earlier, actually, in the bathtub scene. Uh, the the honorable Ned Stark. He spits, he spits that word out of his mouth. The honorable Ned Stark. Uh, different points of view on, on who is truly honor, honorable and uh, who's keeping their vows in this show. And that's why we love it, right? Right? Uh, vows and, you want to talk about vows and loyalties? Grey Worm emerges, makes his vow of loyalty to Danny, and guess what? Keeps it to the very end. Can't wait to talk about that more and more. I do love Grey Worm. And I do love, it makes a ton of sense to me that Grey Worm will go to the bitter end with Danny. Look at where they start here. And uh, I think a great moment. Jacob Anderson, so just just such a wonderful performer. Um, saying so much in, um, you know, uh, um, in broken tongue, uh, not speaking, uh, you know, not speaking the uh, high valerian all the time there and, and just conveying all uh, the true emotions and conveying the, the pride in that name, Grey Warrior, but what it means because it's the name he had when he was freed by Danny. Makes sense that he would uh, end up where he is with her. So uh, the big main event here as we uh, look at vows and loyalties. Oh, we got Jamie Lannister. I call him a victim of vows and loyalties because he served what was, uh, for all intents and purposes, justice to the Mad King. And uh, this moment turns a lot of our heads in terms of uh, just us as fans watching the show. And now you're starting to understand Jamie. And here's Brienne. Brienne of Tarth, Gwendolyn Christie, equally as powerful in this scene. It's definitely, uh, you know, Nikolaj uh, has his uh, Emmy-winning type of moment, his big monologue, but Brienne of Tarth, Gwendolyn Christie, it's a beautiful scene for her. This is a woman of oaths. This is a woman of vows. This is a woman of loyalty. And along the way, because what I love about Brienne is... Uh, other than, you know, I'm sure she has some love and loyalty for House Tarth, of course, but she's not around them. Uh, she's out in the world here. Uh, this is someone who's always like, I don't serve the Starks. I don't serve the Lannisters. She is looking for people of, of uh, actual uh, true virtue to serve, actual uh, loyalty earned. And I love Brienne as as Arya is having to process what justice is and what justice means and how do you get it and how do you serve it and what is righteous justice? And and, and 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 she's early on in that process. It's going to go a long way with, with Arya. Uh, Bran, Bran for me is just, you know, having the, those words, much like John, I look, I think of John Stone season two of his uh, eager kind of teaching and broaden his, uh, broadening his, uh, his um, views and, and just what he thinks and his points of view and his, and, and his uh, just giving him more knowledge about the free folk why you fighting us? All that stuff that John went through. I think this is a little bit of Brienne's moment for me too, where uh, this despicable man has just been broken down in front of her, almost literally piece by piece. He did. He showed honor in trying to save her and, and essentially succeeding in saving her from uh, horrible, 
horrible uh, a rape at the hands of Locke and his men. He does save her from that, even though it costs him his hand and, and costs him himself and his identity. And he is broken down. He's dirty and he's in the mud. And he has admitted to Bran that he loves his sister. And he doesn't really admit that to everyone else. And she's starting to see him. And she, and she in her idea, I think, I think it, and this is my own take on it, I think it confirms Bran's views of who deserves the vows and who deserves the oaths and who deserves the loyalties. I really think so. She's seeing it unfold. He's delivering this truth. Do you think the honorable Ned Stark wanted to hear my side? Everything I could, I could recount the entire speech there uh, from Jamie, but you've all heard it if you're watching here before. He's saying the truth. And I always say, Ned's a good dude. Get Ned, I don't ever want to say some, but sometimes as the show rolls on, even even in season seven and stuff, they, where there was, even the girls are questioning the mistakes uh, that maybe Ned made in raising them and not fully preparing them for the world. I think Ned did it all with good intentions, and I think that needs to be factored in. That's why he is a man of honor. He's a man of principle, too honored and too principled for this world. Clearly, because if everything was right. Ned would be alive. It might mean Stannis is on the throne. I'd be happy with that. Most of you wouldn't be happy with that. But I think if, if, if justice truly was served, Ned would be alive. Ned would be, in, I don't say in a position of power. It's something he's not interested in. But he'd be, he'd be alive. That's enough. That's enough for Arya. It's enough for House Stark. But that's not the world. That's not the world we're in. And, we're in. and, and for Jamie to toss that out, it's a, it's a mistake of Ned. It's it's it's. I love the specific line there. Do you think the Honorable Ned Stark wanted to hear my side? No. He judged me the moment he saw me. The moment he walked in, Ned Stark judged me. But right, what right does the wolf uh, have to to judge the lion? Great line. As, as Jamie just can't take it anymore, and his pride has kept him from saying this. He's tried to put it out there. Little moments. That's season one moment that we talk about often with Robert Baratheon. Hey, King Slayer, get in here. We're talking about our first kills. What did the Mad King say? Burn them all. Burn them all. Now we get the whole story. We get we get the full context. It is justice, and it was justice. Jamie served justice. What would you do if your beloved Renly asked you to kill your father and stand aside while, while thousands were wiped out by wildfire? What would you do, Brienne? And so Brienne, who's out here to, to make vows and keep oaths and give her loyalty to those that deserve it as she goes around this world by herself, essentially. Not, uh, not with any house, not with any side. She's on the side of the living towards the end of the fight, but, um, and it becomes the knight of the, of the Seven Kingdoms, this we know. But in this moment, I, I, I love, I just love Gwendolyn Christie just looking with a mouth open, just mouth agape, just seeing the truth, seeing the world, and seeing where vows and loyalties uh, should be uh, placed. I, I don't know. That's the way I take the scenes. Uh, there's a lot to uh, Brienne there, um, a lot more to discuss, but uh, uh, I love it. I love it. I love it. And to help the Kingslayer, Jamie, my name is Jamie. It's a powerful, memorable scene for a reason. It is about justice and what is true justice. And who deserves it? And who deserves to uh, to live to fight another day for greater purpose? Not the Mad King in that moment. Justice was served. Uh, I love it. I love the breaking down. And again, uh, if you want to take the um, look at the, uh, the 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 visual cues, this is literally an episode of these two characters, plus again John and Egret, but more so these characters who have been. I mean, Jamie Lannister. 
has been dirty for a season and a half. Captured at the end of season one. And I love thinking about it, too. Go back to season one. There's Jamie Lannister. Looks like a, a Disney villain prince. Chiseled, uh, uh, chiseled jaw, the hair, the armor. Oh, he's so pompous. He's one of, and he's pushing kids out of towers. You just want him to get his, uh, get his comeuppance. The end of the season, he's captured. In season two, he is in jail cells. He is covered in mud. His beard is coming in. He's covered in, in uh, his own shit. He's just, he's just down in the muck and mire, literally thrown into a drinking horse piss as uh, allegedly served by Locke, right? Um, um, I always, in, my, in my brain, I always think, well, maybe Locke was lying because it's disgusting. Um, probably not. Locke doesn't seem to have a lot of... Uh, he's not worthy of a lot of uh, vows and loyalties, yeah? Yeah. Uh, but uh, here he is, finally, all that. After all these episodes, Jamie gets a bath, and he emerges clean, starting his path forward, and it's still a wonderfully complicated path. And he still has a lot of lessons to learn, and he still makes a lot of mistakes. That's the beauty of it. But I think he is reborn in this moment, and it's a, it's a, it's a Jamie that has to find uh, who he is and to release that burden, release the burden of uh, truth, uh, and tell his side of the story, finally, to someone who will hear his side. We love that scene for a reason. Other little lines and moments for me. I love, uh, actually, when the Hound is really upset that he's lost his money. Uh, he's won the fight with Barrack. He's cleared. He's innocent of all charges. He wants his gold and uh, calls them thieves. And the archer says, we're outlaws. Outlaws steal. Just love that little moment. I talk a lot about Kyburn's work with Jamie. I cannot say enough great things about Anton Lesser's Kyburn. It's a haunting scene, and we get a clear glimpse of uh, what is to come with Kyburn. Love that. Elena Tyrell. We have a good scene with Tyrion and Elena Tyrell. Uh, love them together, but I, I just always love the line. I always take figs mid-afternoon. They help move the bowels. Great advice. Great uh, advice. Uh, Rickard Karstark in his final moments. I don't want it to save me. I want it to haunt you to the end of your days. Kill me and be cursed. Yeah, man. Especially when you know what's coming. Uh, it's tough to watch. It's tough to watch. It's, it's such a good scene. Like I said, I love this choice of these little choices of Rob not in his full armor for most of the season. He is vulnerable. Then Now here he is in this armor again. He does the beheading uh, out of anger, out of a sense of justice. And his hand, his hand, his hand, he's losing control. It's the same hand that he was shaking, the same hand that was trembling uh, when uh, he discovered that his father was... Um, was 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 dead. Um, so I love that kind of connection there. Um, uh, Jamie and Brianne's bathtub scene. It's the bathtub of truth, and it's one of the greatest scenes. For reason again, it's probably this episode's leg legacy. Uh, and I, as I said before, I really like the the um, R.E.M. Barrack scene. Now, I also want to talk about another of my favorite little scenes. Uh, people, you know, uh, I don't think you all want to celebrate Stannis Baratheon with me, and I get it. Tara Fitzgerald uh, slides in to take over the role of Solis. Uh, and she's so good. I, I want. We always like to highlight some of the episode stars, uh, Gwendolyn Christie, Nicholas Coster-Waldo, yes. But Tara Fitzgerald uh, come, comes in as this broken, just broken woman who, uh, you know, we're talking about Stannis, and, um, and going back, actually, you know, to, to tie it to uh, the, the uh, vows and, and loyalties theme, Stannis goes in there to confess that he has broken his vows of marriage. There's the vows. Stannis broke them. Now, Solis accepts, I'll put a quotation, accepts the breaking of those marriage vows uh, because it's a greater loyalty. So, hey, break a vow. Hey, let's say with John. What are, you, are you trading a vow for a bigger loyalty? What are you doing? And, 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 and is any one of those things uh, true justice? I think Solis accepts that 
breaking of the vow for this concept of a, of a bigger loyalty to the Lord of Light, as explained to her by Melisandre. As we know, Melisandre, sometimes she's speaking what she believes. Sometimes she's uh, telling some lies and sprinkling some powders in the water. Uh, she's a wonderful character to kind of track her true intentions along the way. Uh, but this scene just talks about is, is, is Stannis, Stannis has clear regret. This is why, I, I, you know, we talk about episode stars. You guys can tease me all, all you want about Stannis Baratheon. I, I understand it. And uh, I've talked often about what Stannis' uh, arc means to me and what it represents and, and just in terms of losing yourself. But this is one of those moments. This is this moment. He's going back. He's, the first vow we see him break is this marriage vow. Now, the first time we see him, he's, he's burning uh, the, the old gods or the seven gods there, the, the seven-pointed star. Uh, he's, but Stannis was never loyal to that. He never made any vows. That's why Renly later on says, I hear you found the religion in your old age. I see why with that red woman. I think the first real uh, vow he breaks is the one to Solis when he... Uh, uh, you know, takes Melisandre to the end of the painted table there and uh, births a, a dragon son, uh, or excuse me, a, a, a dragon son, a, a, a ghost son, a, 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 a crazy uh, a spirit son. I think that's the first one for him to come back. And Stephen Delane, I love Stephen Delane's got that little, when, he, when Stannis is uh, angry at himself or contemplating things or dealing with tough choices, he does that little, does that little mouth, mouth, uh, mouth move there. Um, I absolutely love it. And I don't ever want to, I don't want any of you, you don't have to love Stannis Baratheon. I'm not asking you to love Stannis Baratheon. But you have to respect Stephen Delane and what he does with this character. Uh, and what it's telling you. Again, you don't have to root for all these characters. Um, or even if you do, like I root for Rob Stark, but I think there's powerful lessons in the mistakes he makes. That's what these stories are about. That's what Game of Thrones is about. That's what Song of Ice and Fire is about. That's why we keep coming back. These characters are going through hell often. What do we learn from it? What's the show telling us about it? What is your concept of justice? Where do you put your vows? Who are you loyal to? And are you like Gendry? Is it time to make your own vows and loyalties because the ones you've served under and others have served and, and pushed you and oppressed you under, are, are they uh, worthy of your time and should you just make your own? What is your concept of all of this? Uh, and uh, are you losing pieces of yourself along the way? It's a tough, it's a tough question to ask. Stannis, Stannis is lost pieces of himself already and it's going to absolutely destroy everything around him so it's a powerful scene as well and why we highlight it all right next up and there's a lot more we can discuss in all these episodes but next up will be season three episode six the climb this is the chaos is a ladder episode i cannot wait to get to it i hope you join me for that again if you have any questions just use the hashtag casually talk let me know what you got or just comment on the episode, what the episode meant to you now, what's the big lesson that you take from the episode, where you're from your, some of the scenes have a lot of resonance uh, for you, and, and um, let's just talk about it, huh? This is Casually Talk here on the Good People Association. Don't forget, we have got a Kickstarter going. That's right, you can help us make Futility, the actual game of living, a board game reality. Just go to Kickstarter. Or find the link in all of our descriptions on our YouTube videos. Uh, we're tweeting them out. You'll find it. Uh, search for Futility, the actual game of living Kickstarter, and help us make this game a absolute reality. That's it. We'll see you soon, friends. Bye.